It was the most disgusting thing I have ever seen or heard in my life. To be forced to see and hear such crazy lovemaking the whole evening, <laughs> in which every feeling of decency is violated, and by which not just the public, but even musicians seem to be enchanted, it was the saddest thing I have ever experienced in my entire artistic life. <laughs> That was writer Paul Thomason reading a quote by Clara Schumann, pianist, composer, and widow of Robert Schumann. It's something Clara wrote after attending a performance of Richard Wagner's Tristan and Isolde. Welcome to He Sang, She Sang from Classical New York, WQXR. I'm Marin Lazian, and you heard Placido Domingo and Nina Stemme singing the roles of Tristan and Isolde. Today, I'll be speaking with Paul Thomason about love and death and the opera that unites them both. You'll hear about what that mysterious Tristan chord really is and about how Wagner's music is kind of like this really potent drug that sends you on a four-hour music trip. Some people think of Tristan and Isolde as one of the greatest love stories ever set to music. But Paul Thomason isn't so sure about that. Well, that would be, if you'll forgive me, a rather superficial view of it, I think. Yes, it is an overwhelming love story. But I think the emphasis for Wagner's opera should be on the overwhelming rather than the love. This isn't a conventional love story. It's not... Two gorgeous kids are in love and then one dies and, you know, it's all so sad. Wagner took an ancient Celtic myth and very deliberately jettisoned all the outer events. Uh, and he actually said, the whole meaning of the outer world of my opera hangs on nothing but the inner movements of the soul. So this was a very deep, almost psycho analytic idea of what was going on inside of them and the torment. I think we hear that in the music right off the bat. I mean, the prelude to Act One is famous, if for no other reason than uh, for the Tristan chord, which comes up in the second full bar. Isolation, the Tristan chord wasn't completely new. I mean, you could find it in earlier music by Mozart and Liszt, but it was the way that Wagner used the chord that was new and shocking, actually. For hundreds of years, music was built on a series of chords that defined a key, like a musical home base that you were oriented to and rooted in. You always knew where you were. But with this Tristan chord, Wagner shook the foundations of Western music because its whole purpose was to disorient you, to keep shifting and moving and never actually arriving anywhere. So it sets up this excruciating tension that was and still is shocking to our ears. Exactly. And in fact, there were, for decades after the premiere in 1865, people complained that there was no melody in this opera. And in fact, Tristan is one long, gigantic melody. Mm -hmm. 
as you said, it starts up with this incredible sense of longing, and you can almost hear how it should resolve, how it should come to rest, sort of like the end of the sentence. Only it doesn't. It just sort of moves, and then another instrument takes it up, and it kind of repeats. This obviously is a reflection of Tristan and Isola's desire to be with each other, to finally be united. And Wagner manages, somehow, to keep this unresolved for the whole three and a half, four hours of the music. The listener doesn't have to know that going in. The listener doesn't have to think, oh, yes, listen, the tensions, he's ratcheting it up. (laughs) Because it's music. You automatically respond to that to one degree or another. As you said earlier, Paul, this isn't about the outer circumstances, and it's certainly not about the plot. It's about this ecstatic love between Tristan and Isolde, who actually have to die in order to be together. Isolde is betrothed to Tristan's uncle, King Mark, so Tristan resists his feelings for her. But they desperately want to be together, and actually they even go so far as to drink what they assume is a death potion, because sometimes there are death potions in opera. Um, But surprise, surprise, it's actually a love potion. They both do it willingly. They want to die. Why is that? I mean, we, we know that Tristan is a man of honor. He owes a debt of gratitude, in a way, to King Mark, who's taken him on. He, he brought him up. Exactly. Which is an important point of the story. He's homeless. I think he doesn't believe that he can have earthly love. That's a very important point, Marin. And I think you're right. He doesn't feel he deserves love. And it has, if he gets it, it has to come at enormous cost somehow. Right. Yeah. He's born into very sad circumstances just a few days after his father dies. So his mother was grieving when he was born, and that's why she names him Tristan. The name comes from the Latin word for sadness or sorrow. So the mother gives baby Tristan a little kiss after he's born, and then she immediately dies too. So the very first thing that Tristan learns is that love and death are inextricably linked. We know from the the end of Act One, just from the music, there are never going to be little Tristans and Isolas and little Siegfrieds <laughs> and Brunhildas, you know, scampering through the castle. This is not that kind of love. Right. W.H. Auden put it very well. For Tristan and Isolda, all other relations to other people and the world have ceased to have any significance. Though the relation is the only thing of value that exists for them, it's a torment because the real desire is not to have sex with each other, but for their two souls to merge and become one. That obviously is impossible as long as they have bodies, so the ultimate goal is to die in each other's arms. Right. There is something unmistakably erotic about their connection, about their musical connection, but like you said, it goes much deeper than that. It's not about physical consummation. It's about the the melding of their souls. It's about a spiritual consummation. Mm -hmm. But there was this distinction in Tristan between the world of the day, which is the material world. It's our reason. It's our logic. It's what we think. Our mundane existence. And then there's the spiritual world, which happens at night. It's Mm -hmm. something at such an instinctive level. 
that they can't control. This is Isolde keeps talking about fate, Frau Mene, the, the love goddess. This especially comes out in, in Act Two when her servant Brangena is saying, "Don't put out the torch because extinguishing the light, making it dark, is the sign for Tristan to come." And Brangena keeps warning Isolde, "This is a trap. I don't think this is going to work. You really should not do this." And Isolde says. In essence, there's really nothing I can do about it. Contrast that with what, how rich the harmony is, and the and the rhythms, and the um, the exultant music and emotion of Act Two, the beginning of Act Two, with the beginning of Act Three, which happens in the day, and Tristan is lying unconscious. I can think of very few, if any, examples in all of Western music that is so desolate as the music at the beginning of Act Three. bright sunshine. I always think of it as almost deserty. It's dry. Mm. It's arid. The sea is totally flat. There's At the beginning, there's just no movement. Tristan's unconscious. It's total desolation. And that's during the day. So that's how Wagner is contrasting that. In fact, a lot of Tristan's ranting in Act 3 has to do with how awful it is that the sun is out and he's still longing for the night so that's where he and his older live together. It, that's their realm. That is. In fact, several times he has the wonderful German phrase "der Wunderreich der Nacht," the magical realm of night, and that's a, a phrase that gets repeated a lot. I'm Marin Lazian. This is he sang, she sang, and I'm talking with writer Paul Thomason about Wagner's masterpiece Tristan and Isolde. We spent some time trying to figure out why this opera makes people a little nervous. It challenges us because if we give it even the smallest permission, you know, by actually sitting in our seats and listening 
even fairly attentively, it pulls us into its world and it's not a world that we're comfortable with. It's against almost everything we hold as a society, which says, in essence, you go to school, you work hard, you will be successful, you find a nice mate, you raise children. God bless you, dear. <laughs> and we all know that there's more to life than that. And so we tend to kind of push it away because we don't want to deal with it. It makes us a little uncomfortable because it can upset that. But isn't one of the ways that we deal with that discomfort by turning to art? I mean, don't we look for solace in theater and music? Tristan doesn't let us do that. It keeps our nose in the fact that there is a whole other side to life, and it's called death. And Freud wrote about the death drive, and he got really pummeled for it because Freud said inside every human being, there's the, there's the drive to live and there's the, the drive to die. And if we don't consciously try to accept both sides, whatever, whichever side we're not um, being conscious of trips us up. And on some level, I think we understand that, but we deal with it in different ways. But in Tristan, boy, we get the whole death drive thing and the appeal of it. Right. This music is incredibly appealing, and we experience the pleasure along with them. They're singing about joining together for all eternity in this magical realm of night, and it's so gorgeous that we want to go there with them. It's like we drank the potion and we're under the spell too. In fact, the music for that second part of the great love duet where they're talking specifically about dying together is the music that comes back when Isolde sings her, her love death at the end of the opera when it finally gets resolved. It's extremely pleasurable. It's very sensual music. It's extraordinary music. I have chills just talking about this music. <laughs> uh, total surrender for me, absolutely. Thank you. 
You heard Placido Domingo and Nina Stemma singing the roles of Tristan and Isolde, with the voice of Mihoko Fujimara echoing in the distance as Isolde's faithful handmaiden, Brangena. And it was Antonio Papano conducting the Royal Opera House Orchestra at Covent Garden. I'm Marin Lazian, and I'm speaking with writer Paul Thomason about Richard Wagner's Tristan and Isolde. Wagner's idea of drama was always music, from the very beginning. He almost always wrote the libretto and distributed it to his friends before he'd written the music. And people would often say, well, now, wait a minute, I don't understand. You said in Act 1, the character said X and Y, and then at the end, Y had happened. So why didn't we get blah, blah, blah? And Wagner always answered the same way. He said, well, yeah, I understand why you ask that. But when you hear the music, all will be revealed. So for Wagner, the important part was not so much the words the singers sang on stage, though they were important. It was the music. The music would go right past our thinking mind and into our hearts and souls, and we would feel some sort of resolution. And Wagner did that deliberately. It's like a drug, which is why sometimes people have trouble with Wagner, because once you drink that potion, you accept everything about it, right. and you turn over all control to Wagner's music. And it's sometimes not terribly comfortable. It can be a little frightening, yeah. especially in the music for Tristan, because the music is so hypnotic. It's so all-consuming, obsessive, writhing, always trying to find some sort of um, resting place. And yet that's the reflection of what the characters are going through. So the music was unlike anything people would have heard at the time. What about now? The drug still works. <laughs> <laughs> it will still take you out its trip no matter how many times you have, you have had it. You know, you don't build up a tolerance to Tristan, <laughs> which is why at the end of a good performance of Tristan, people just go nuts. It's paradoxical. You, you want to stand up and scream and yell and carry on for this release, this physical expression of, of release. But at the same time, you're so wiped out, you don't know if you can get out of your seat. And you're not the only ones wiped out. I spoke to Stuart Skelton, who is singing the role of Tristan, and he speaks at length about how physically demanding this role is to sing. Yeah. But it's not just that it's long, it's it's intense. Actually, why don't we hear him talk about that? Good. It's not a role that you ever put on your schedule until all of the boxes get ticked somehow. Um, and you never ever go into a career in, as a tenor thinking Tristan is going to be something you'll sing. You never, that doesn't, it's kind of like what is it about not climbing the Himalayas that most people don't put on their list? You know, it's just one of those things. It's uh, Tristan and both, both Siegfrieds and Siegfried and Gordon Damerol are roles that are for the singers that do have that in their future. It's their Everest. Uh, and if climbing Everest is in your future, terrific. If it's not, there's no harm in not climbing Everest, you know. I mean, most people don't manage to climb Everest in their life, so it's perfectly okay. Uh, and had 
Tristan not come my way, I would have been really more than happy to sit in an audience and listen to the greatest Tristans sing it and, and enjoy it as an audience member. As it turns out, Tristan kind of fell in my lap a little bit. And as it became increasingly obvious that it was going, it was a bit of an inevitability, um, then you start sort of planning around when you do it and when you don't do it. I think that's one of the things is you don't climb the Himalayas every year. You've got the preparation involved and the downtime afterwards and then the rebuilding back up to that stamina for the next time it comes along. Almost everything I'd sung up until that point only gets you about halfway prepared to realise exactly how long it is, particularly in Act three you come out of the second half of act two and we've got a there's a love duet between Tristan and Isolde that is the best part of 50 minutes long I mean five zero minutes and the act's what an hour and 15 all up and we're singing for, for 50 of them and then there's a an intermission and then act three opens with Tristan and then Tristan spends about 45 minutes going completely nuts on stage and literally just shattering into a million pieces vocally and dramatically So there's nothing that can really prepare you for that, given that that's happening in hour four. Rather, I mean, usually when you go to pieces, by, in, in Peter Grimes when you go to pieces, you're all done in two hours 50. When Tristan starts to go to pieces, you're entering your fourth hour on stage. So it's starting to get a little, you know, um, there's nothing that can really prepare you. But the only way to really know is to once you know that it's coming up for you however, and however long every singer is different, they start preparing um, a certain amount of time in advance. Just start singing it and learn what it is that your body needs to accommodate every time to get it to go, to get it to work, to get it to be consistent and to work it into the system. Like anything, like any athletic pursuit, there's a muscle memory involved. Your, your body does muscular things at the same time every time with a serious amount of training. It'll always do that at the same time. That was tenor Stuart Skelton talking about the physical challenges of singing the role of Tristan I'm Marin Lazian, and my guest today is Paul Thomason. It turns out that this opera is dangerous not just for tenors, but for sopranos and instrumentalists and even conductors. You know, there's actually been a history of sort of physical mishap and even <laughs> death associated with Tristan, appropriately with Tristan. Well, at the very beginning of our conversation, you mentioned Tristan's name meaning misfortune. His mother had named him specifically because he was a child of sorrow and blah, blah, blah. And in, in fact, the opera very quickly, even before it was premiered, had developed a reputation for being totally unplayable. It had numerous rehearsals. I've read 77, but I'm, nobody can quite now verify that. But it had a number of rehearsals and it was given up as unplayable. And so it was only when King Ludwig brought – Wagner to the court in Munich and then said, I want this opera done in my house. And he ordered it done that we got a, an actual performance of Tristan. And even then, the first performance had to be postponed because the soprano was very hoarse. Um, they gave a few performances and then the Tristan and Isolde were a married couple. And they went back to their home theater in Dresden. And a few weeks later, the Tristan, the tenor, died very suddenly at the age of 29. And everybody said, oh, it's the Tristan curse. <laughs> <laughs> and there have actually been two conductors who died 
conducting Tristan. It is. It's a curse. And the painter Salvador Dali died while listening to his favorite recording of Tristan. Well, maybe that explains why famous Wagner conductor Christian Thielemann described this opera as a tiger that he keeps at bay. <laughs> uh, he says he keeps it at arm's length, that he, he doesn't let it get too close to him because he, he says, I mean, maybe he just remembers that there were a couple of conductors before him that <laughs> the dust in, in the act of conducting. But he, he also just, he talks about the, how it seduces you and it tries to tempt you to surrender to it at every moment. And he, he treats it like a tiger. He tries to keep it in its cage or distract it with a piece of meat. <laughs> but he, he clearly understands that you, you don't want to give yourself over too completely to, to Tristan. about you, Paul, but I have given myself over completely by the time we get to the final aria in Tristan and Isolde. This is Isolde's famous Liebestod, which literally means love death. And I think it's one of the most extraordinary and overwhelming pieces of music ever written. Wagner called this moment a transfiguration. He saw it as a sort of transformation rather than a death. Isolde is standing over Tristan's lifeless body, and she sings about his gentle smile, his sweet breath, and this melody that she hears sounding from within him. And then she starts to describe these waves that are swelling and roaring around her, and you can hear those waves in the music. At the start, it's pretty quiet, but it begins to ramp up and intensifies and intensifies until it finally reaches this ecstatic climax. This is Isolde's transcendence beyond this world, to a place where she and Tristan can finally be together. Wagner was very smart because at the end, her next to the last note is an F sharp at the, at the bottom of the staff. But then her last note, her last word is loosed. It's an octave jump, so it sounds so ethereally high, crystalline almost. That F sharp, it lies for a soprano, also for tenors, in what's called the passaggio. Passaggio, yeah. Which is interesting. Passaggio means passage, a really narrow passage in, in the sinus cavity for both, in both women and men's voices. And what is this moment for Isolde? This is her passage from one realm into another. Brilliant. 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 
we've been talking about transformation. Was this the end of the Romantic era? Did this take us from one <laughs> musical world in, into another? Many people have said that. Many people have said Wagner took Western harmonic music as far as it could go, and it so it led inevitably to Berg and Schoenberg and 12-tone music. And it certainly led into Debussy, Ravel. Richard Strauss would have been impossible without Wagner. But after Wagner, music, musicians didn't quite know where to turn. What did you do without sounding like leftover Wagner? <laughs> Cold on the table. Cold, exactly. <laughs> Diluted Wagner. And, and there were a lot of operas written after that that, you know, it, it seemed like they were just redoing Wagner. One of the ways that Tristan is different from all of the other of Wagner's operas is because it it came to him, and I'm using that advisedly, it came to him first from within as music. Usually Wagner was thinking, oh, I should do an opera about this. Or He was a voracious reader, so he was always getting an idea, oh, this would be a good opera. And then when he started writing the libretto, occasionally he would jot down, you know, E-flat or um, a rhythm that he associated with this that he would then use as sort of a like a sketch to make the music. That didn't happen with Tristan. He was very busy with his ring cycle. But he kept getting music that would come to him that had nothing to do with the ring. And he wrote about that to some friends. He said, I got this thread of music was the word that he used that came to me and I could have spun it out all day. And then eventually he realized he had to write this. I mean, he was right when he said, I've got this thread. The score to Tristan is a huge tapestry made up of so many individual threads. One example of that, uh, Georg Scholte in his memoirs talks about visiting Richard Strauss, who happened to adore Tristan, when Strauss was an elderly man, not long before he died, actually. And Strauss handed him the, the score of Tristan, the orchestra score, open to the last page and said, so, young man, what do you see? And Scholte was kind of... And Strauss pointed out the last chord in this opera is played by every instrument in the orchestra, including the harps, except the English horn. Why not the English horn? From the very beginning of the opera, the English horn has represented desire. Tristan and Isolde are dead. Desire is gone.
He Sang, She Sang is a production of Classical New York, WQXR. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the show in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And visit our show page at wqxr.org. You'll find a couple of links there, and you can leave us a note and let us know what you thought of the show. I'd like to thank our guest, Paul Thomason, and our producer, Noelle Morris. I'm Marin Lazian. Thank you for listening. <laughs>